I'm not sure if you've ever talked to someone uh, about becoming a Christian, but a very common uh, reason why people don't want to become a Christian is because they find uh, the idea of Christianity rather restrictive. Um, there are a few too many laws that we have to or supposed to live by. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you are a Christian and you're thinking, actually, I know I shouldn't say this, but I do find God a bit constrictive sometimes. You know, all these laws that, that you're supposed to do, they're kind of a bit burdensome. It's interesting, right? The passage here this morning says, you know, if, if you know God, if you love God, then, you know, these commands shouldn't be burdensome. But I don't think he's talking about the really obscure ones in the Old Testament, you know, do not cook a goat in, my mother, in its mother's milk. It's not a commandment that I'm really like, oh, I better hope I don't, I don't bust the stuff this one up. But it's kind of the commandment like, honor your father and mother, or, or, or don't covet or be jealous. You know, it's those kinds of things like, does it really matter if, you know, I don't talk to my parents for a while because they were really annoying? I, I mean, is that really that bad? See, sometimes God's commands can be a bit annoying, maybe. But sometimes you go, well, maybe I should live these things out. Maybe God really is right, and, and I'll, I'll try to live out God's commands. But then you become discouraged as you try and then fail. Maybe you try really hard to, to honor your parents, but then they tell you, for the 30th time, put on your jacket, it's cold outside, and you just really, I just, I just want to hit them over the head or something. Like, I know they love me, but to honor them in this moment, it just seems like a really burdensome task. I'm pretty sure that whether it's God's commands being uh, burdensome or, or whether you become discouraged if you try to live out those commands and fail, it's something we've all wrestled with. The, the good news is, I think John kind of speaks to those moments in our lives today through this passage. Uh, the big idea in 1 John 5 is, is to believe in Jesus. John reminds us that, that believing in Jesus alone leads us to true life. Let me say that again. Believing in Jesus alone leads us to true life. He, he really does make a difference uh, to your life today. As we look at this passage, I want to point out three things that I think that Jesus brings, that the difference he makes. Uh, the first is that Jesus brings true life. The second is he brings true freedom. And lastly, he brings true hope or assurance. Uh, if I spoke too quickly, it's okay. On the inside cover of your bulletin, we've got those three points down if you'd like to follow along the outline. But we're going to think about the difference Jesus makes because I truly believe that if you know Jesus, he brings far greater hope, far greater assurance and freedom than anything in this world could ever offer. So why don't we look at the passage uh, and think about this life that Jesus brings. Jesus brings true life. Um, right to the middle of our passage, verse 13. Let me read it for us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, and essentially, John, John is saying here that the reason why I've written this whole letter is so that you can have or can know that you have eternal life. Life with Jesus that is filled with hope and joy. A life that is no longer tainted or marked by suffering. Uh, a mark, a life that no longer... Uh, is in danger of leading to death. This is eternal life. And John says, basically, I, I want to point you to how you can be certain that you can have it. That the reason he writes, and the reason I think he writes in verse 6 to 12, is to point us to the life that we can have by believing in Jesus. Life that, this eternal life, it can be had by believing in Jesus. So let's look at verses 6 to 12. Um, look at verse 6. Let me read it for us. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. 
He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Um, it's pretty confusing. What, what in the world is he talking about? Water and blood. Um, many people have kind of read this passage and scratched their heads. Um, some think that it refers to the sacraments that we see in church. So water refers to baptism. Uh, a blood refers to communion. And, and Jesus is present in those moments. Um, I think it's most likely the water and the blood refers to the endpoints or, or the markers of Jesus' ministry. Uh, water refers to Jesus' baptism. And blood refers to his ultimate death on the cross. See, there's been a discussion in the church community as to who Jesus actually is. Is he just a normal man or is he the son of God as well? Is he both human and divine? Is he both? What is he? That's why John in the second bit of verse 6 says, He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. There were a group of people in John's church community that had ultimately left but they thought that, well, Jesus' um, godliness, his, his divinity, uh, actually left him before he, he died on the cross. Uh, it's this idea that God can't possibly, if he truly is God, he, he can't die. And so, basically, Jesus was this God-man character, but the, the godliness of Jesus kind of departed him. It's kind of like your spirit departing. God's, uh, God's God, Jesus' godliness departed him before he died on the cross. And that's why John says here that Jesus didn't come by water only, which everyone kind of believed that Jesus was God at that point, but he came by water and blood. That is, he was God at the cross as well. John is reminding us once more in this letter that throughout the whole of Jesus' life, he was both God and man. But who cares? Who cares? Well, the power and the force of what Jesus promises us, eternal life, is so intimately connected with who he is. Remember, we've been saying, because Jesus is human, he identifies with us. He's just like you and me. But because he's divine, he can go to the cross, act like you and me, but take the infinite punishment that God would, would pay to those who are sinful people. See, to affirm this, as we affirm the dual nature of Jesus, we acknowledge that Jesus truly cleansed the sin of God's people. It leads us to being confident that we can have eternal life. But how do we know that John's view, or John's viewpoint, is, is true? Haven't you heard, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Um, recently, um, uh, Em and I, uh, my wife and I, were looking at pictures of our, I think he's 16 months old, I don't know how old he is now, he's over a year, so our son that's over a year, and we're looking back at photos when he was like a month or two old, and back then, we thought, this baby is the cutest baby in the whole world. Like, there is no baby possibly cuter than him. And then we, we wondered, are we being a bit biased? You know, parents are supposed to be biased about their children, and we're thinking, nah, this is objective. We are objectively, like, this guy is amazingly cute. Then we're looking back photos of this guy uh, this week, and I saw, like, this guy had wispy hair and weird kind of dry skin on his face and had weird, like, clothes on. I think objectively, he was a bit weird-looking. Um, but we thought he was, like, amazing. Um, with a bit of kind of perspective, we thought, this guy's a bit, bit weird when he was younger. I think it kind of reminds me of this idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. When parents look at their kids, sometimes when people date each other, uh, they're kind of blinded to the truth um, because of feelings they have for them. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the same with uh, the Gospel of John? Or, or John, is he saying, I, I just really like this Jesus character, and, and if you don't believe me, tough, but, like, I just really like him? How can we be so certain of what John says? 
Well, John reminds us there, once again in verse 6, he's not the only one saying it. It's the Holy Spirit as well. Let me read the end of verse 6. And it's the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It's this objective third-party speaker speaking into the same situation, saying the same thing. And see, in the Bible, if you're in, the, in a court system, you needed uh, more than one witness uh, to have a valid kind of uh, proof of something. You needed like two or three witnesses. And so John here is saying there are multiple witnesses that testify to the same thing, uh, that Jesus is more than just a mere man. He's the Son of God as well. So the Holy Spirit internally to the believers say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a man, but He's God as well. But also we see the water and the blood speak and say the same things. If you read the Gospel of Mark, uh, the shortest of uh, the Gospels, we see at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, at the end of uh, Mark in chapter 15, uh, the water and the blood, the baptism and the cross. But it's interesting what happens at these events. At the baptism, we hear these words come down from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. At the cross, the centurion that stands at the base of the cross as Jesus um, uh, breathes his final breath, says these words. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The water, the blood, and the Spirit all point to Jesus being the Son of God who takes away the sins of this world. And so John is, is saying that if you believe this, you can be certain. You can be certain of true life. But if you disagree with John, you're not just disagreeing with someone that you don't like. Uh, we're told that John says you, you make God out to be a liar because His Holy Spirit Himself testifies to the same thing. Life and death rests upon who you think Jesus is. John isn't attempting to win some kind of academic argument. He wants people to experience the hope, the forgiveness, the freedom that Jesus brings in relationship with Him. That people can stand before God confident that their sins are no longer held against them. They can stand before God knowing that they will share eternal life. And so this passage, as we are reminded about who Jesus is, uh, we are reminded that eternal life starts now. Uh, through God's Holy Spirit's that lives in believers, uh, they can truly know who God is. But believing about Jesus is more than just kind of an academic or an intellectual statement. It's to have our hearts, for those who are believers, children of God, stirred, uh, that we feel a freedom that we don't otherwise feel, and that we feel a hope that we wouldn't otherwise have apart from Jesus. So let's think about these two ideas of freedom and hope in the rest of the passage. Leads us to our next point, Jesus brings true freedom. If you look at verses 1 to 5, uh, we're kind of, once again, reminded that it, it, this letter is all about believing in Jesus. In verse 1 and verse 5, believing in Jesus leads to something. But John is trying to remind us that it's not just believing in Jesus leads up to eternal life, uh, believing in Jesus leads to freedom. And in this, these few passages, anyway, freedom from the burden of God's commands and freedom from this world. Uh, so firstly, the idea of freedom from the burden of God's commands. See, John reminds us that those who love God, know God, um, in fact, follow His commands. Look there in verse 3. See, in fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. Uh, but note here that, that it's not just keeping God's commands. That's not just the extent of what it is for a believer, but it's not to find God's commands burdensome. 
See, there's a big difference between obeying someone and, and not feeling dragged down or burdened by what they say. I think one of the, the primary reasons uh, why we, we find God's commands burdensome is because we recognize that we just can't live up to them. Any time you've kind of given a set of things that you have to follow and you, you can't do them, you, you feel a bit burdened, let, let, you're just kind of struggling to kind of keep up. Um, anytime there's an objective standard. Um, have you ever, like, any time ever done, like, a musical exam? Right? I'm sure lots of people here have learned some kind of instrument and have had to do some kind of musical exam in their life. And so I, I played, um, not many people know this, I played the trombone when I was in high school in the concert band, and I had to do a, a trombone exam. And so I had to learn, like, um, you know, different scales and different pieces. Uh, but with all kind of musical exams, there's this oral component. Uh, they play stuff on the piano, and you're supposed to tell them, you know, what, what, like, what, what note was that? Or you're supposed to sing it back to them. And I, I'm just horribly tone deaf. I can do stuff on a trombone, but when it comes to singing, I'm like... And I think they recognize that people can't sing very well. So you're allowed to, instead of singing the, the, the melody back, you, you can hum it. So I was trying to hum the melody back. And I, I just remember how embarrassed I was and burdened by the lack of my skill. I was like, they go, do this note. And I'll, it'll go, ding. And I'm like, mmm. <laughs> just like all over the shop. It was, it was kind of embarrassing. Any time you kind of come face to face with some objective standard, and you don't match up with it, you quickly recognize just not only your inability, uh, but the burden it places on you in the fact that you just can't live up. See, in a similar way, as God calls us to live in this world, uh, calls us to live in a certain way, and we realize that so often, instead of moving towards that standard, we move away, we start to feel that not only do we fall far short, but we feel burdened. But I think there's another reason why God's commands are, are burdensome. I think it's, it's this. We separate uh, the law of God, what God calls us to do, uh, with the character of God, who God is, the one that gives us these laws. See, we, we look at the law without looking at the kind and gracious character behind the law. Um, some people say we just look at the naked law, just what the law tells us to do. And as we look at just what we're told to do, we inadvertently start to think certain things about God. He's just out there to ruin our joy. He doesn't truly care about me. Otherwise, why would he set all these rules and regulations that I need to live by? And we start to think that if I can do these things, then God will look at me more favorably. God's going to love me more if I, can, if I can live up to these things. See, as we just look at the naked law, just do not murder. Obey and honor your parents. We start to feel burdened because we th just think, oh, it's just another thing I need to do. Let me kind of illustrate how these kind of play out in our lives. Um, often I, I take, after work, I'll take Atticus for a walk to the park and walk down the road in the cool of the evening. And um, it's kind of fun because I get to see all these beautiful houses as I, as I push my son down the road. Um, and, and, and there are two things that I like to look out for in houses. Uh, a double garage where you can store lots of stuff and double stories with lots of storage room. As you can see, our house is a bit too small to store all our bits. It doesn't have enough storage. So I'm always kind of lusting over people with bigger houses and bigger garages to, to store things. And so as I, you know, and I'm sure everyone's kind of been in a situation. Not so much that you like a, your, your, your heart's desire as a double garage, but surely there's something else in other people's lives that you go, if only I had that. You know, if only I had 
uh, their, their intellect. If only I had their, their, their job, if only I was in their stage of life, then, then life would just be so much better. And, and it's, it's, it's into this situation that God's commands speak, don't they? The Tenth Commandment. God calls us not to covet, not to desire what others have. And so as I push my son down the road and I look at these beautiful double garages and double stories and remember the Tenth Commandment, I, I just feel this burden of, well, in some sense, I, I feel burdened because I just can't live up to it. I'm reminded that I'm breaking God's law as I kind of lust after these massive storage areas. I'm burdened by not living rightly. But I think another reason I'm burdened is this. I start to conceptualize of God as one who just is out to steal my joy. I mean, think about it. Who, who really cares if I'm jealously looking at someone else's garage? What does it matter if I'm envious of someone else's spare storage room? I mean, it's, it's, I'm not hurting anyone. It's in my heart. I'm not, it's not like I'm going out to steal their house. As I just see the naked law, do not covet. As I disconnect it from the, the great and kind lawgiver, I feel burdened of just having to follow another thing that I am told to do. John tells us that if you know God, if you love God, God's commands aren't burdensome. Well, how, does, how, does, how does Jesus make a difference? Well, we're told in Scripture that, that Jesus makes a difference because He fulfills perfectly the law in our place. He does what we cannot do by living perfectly in obedience to God here on earth. He acts as a substitute, dying in our place on the cross, accepting our sin-stained record of disobedience taking the judgment that's associated with that. And instead, he gives us his perfect record of obedience, of sinless perfection. And so as we stand before God, we stand no longer condemned. We stand as those who are God's children, given God's Holy Spirit to now live according to how God would call us to live. We're no longer burdened because we're enabled and we're equipped to live the way God wants us to live. That's why God's laws aren't burdensome. But I think the other reason is, well, it's because Jesus draws us into a new relationship with God. See, it's in this relationship we are captivated by the loving kindness of God. It's from this amazing position of abundance that we reconnect the, the law of God with the character of God. We recognize the lie that says God is a killjoy out to ruin our life. And we start to realize that he sets his laws and his commands for our good and our flourishing. We recognize the intention behind God's laws. These are words drenched with love and care for his people. They are commands built and constructed so that we would enjoy life here on this earth, that we would be people that flourish. So back to my illustration about wanting two garage car spots and wanting a second story to put more stuff in my house. With Jesus, I am equipped to live out God's commands as he gives me the Holy Spirit in order to turn from coveting. See, in a relationship with Jesus, I'm no longer, I no longer have this mindset of, I better not be jealous. I start to recognize that God dearly loves me, that he no, makes no mistakes, and, and I am in this small house for a reason. I start to realize that, that these laws are for my good. That they're, that they're there just in case I become embittered against God for not giving me what I think I need. They're there to protect me from callousing my heart, from seeing all the good things that God does provide for me. 
See, in relationship with Jesus, as we're amazed, astounded by his love, I start to reconnect the law with the character of God. Instead of finding them burdensome, I find them helpful ways in which to navigate life in this world. Joyful expressions of my trust in God. As you know Jesus, you're no longer going to feel constricted by God's laws because we start to recognize their intention and the hope they bring to our lives. But we also see that they don't just bring freedom from, from the, the burdensome nature of God's commands, but they, knowing Jesus brings us freedom from the world. Do you notice there in verse 4? For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. The idea of overcoming of, the, of this world is similar to what we read earlier in the letter. It's this idea that we will, won't be seduced to, to satisfy the sinful cravings of our desires. That instead, instead we will be freed to live joyfully according to the way God calls us to live. The faith of the believer as they know Jesus helps them overcome this world. They recognize by faith they're no longer bound to sinful ways of living. All of it has been crucified on the cross. They're now free to live in a way that acknowledges and glorifies God. But while we recognize that God does bring us freedom, that He does transform our hearts, that He does give us hope to live in this world, we start to realize that so often uh, we fail instead of succeed. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to kind of live out and obey God, but so often we can fail. What happens in those moments? How do you feel? Well, in relationship with Jesus, I think you should feel hopeful. This leads us to our last point. Jesus brings true assurance. Um, what do you do in those moments when, when you fail? Um, is that the end? Can you fail so many times, disobey God so many times before you get booted out of God's family? Some people think so. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. Um, pretty kind of confusing. Who really knows what John is talking about? Um, I, I think it's kind of, maybe it's kind of capturing this idea uh, that there are kind of sins that kind of maybe do lead you so far away from God that you can never come back. Um, but there are some sins that, well, maybe it's okay. You, you can still come back to God. Some people are trying to make sense of what John is talking about by saying, well, in the Old Testament, there was a, a distinction of laws, or, or sins, sorry. Uh, there were unintentional sins and intentional sins. Uh, you just need to look at our current legal system. So there's this idea of unintentional uh, murder, manslaughter. It's this accidental act of, of us that kind of leads to the death of, of someone else. Um, and then there's an intentional act, uh, which is murder, a, a premeditated action carried out in order to kill someone. And, and so some people said, well, maybe John is talking about this. You know, if you unintentionally sin against someone, well, you can come back from that. But if you intentionally sin against someone, well, that's, it's all over, folks. Well, the problem with this kind of thinking is that I'm sure every one of us has intentionally done something against another person. In a, in a moment of rage, in a moment of frustration, we might have lashed out, shouted at someone angrily, and meant every word that we said, only to realize maybe half an hour later, oh, that was a bit over the top. Does that mean that we're all going to die? 
Well, I think uh, a key and a helpful way of understanding this passage is to recognize the death that that John is writing about here is not a a physical death, uh, but a spiritual death. See, the sin that John is talking about is a sin that ultimately leads a person to reject Jesus totally. Uh, Throughout the whole letter, John has been saying, you know, um, Christians will sin, but there is something that leads us totally away from God, and that's to reject His Son, to reject Jesus as a Son of God sent from heaven, uh, to be the substitute, to be, as last week we said, the atoning sacrifice, that is, the person that would die in our place to draw us back into a relationship with God. And Jesus, so John is, is calling and pointing to, to, to a, 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 a moment in someone's life where someone is weak in their faith. I think this is the sin that does not lead to death. John is saying, for these people, I want you to be, to be praying for them, for that person that, that is weak and forced into temptation, but still seeks to turn back to Jesus. Someone who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Someone who tries and struggles and falls, but still believes in Jesus. John reminds us that we can be redeemed from failure. There is no indiscretion, no act of, of failure or weakness uh, that can lead us so far away from God, except rejecting Jesus Christ, that we cannot be redeemed from. You notice there in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. See, in verse 19, we are reminded that, that Satan, the devil, has power in this world. But John says, don't worry, be of hope. For those that confess Jesus to be the Son of God that takes away their sins, they will not be taken away from God. And this is to be the hope of the believer. This is to be the assurance and confidence Though we stumble, though you are weak and fall to temptation, you have confidence in your eternal destiny as you trust in Jesus. See, the implication is this. If you're weak, if you're feeling far from God, yet you continue to believe, then Jesus offers you amazing confidence and hope, something that surpasses anything else, because it's not based on what we do. It's not we fail and then we get back on our feet and try harder again the next time, Our hope is not based on what we do, but what Jesus has done. Friends, knowing Jesus gives us an amazing hope to transcend the devil, to transcend weakness and failure, and to trust that Jesus brings eternal life. We spent the last, essentially, 10 weeks looking at this letter of 1 John. I want to ask you the question, how is your belief in Jesus transforming your life in this world? How's your belief in Jesus transforming your life in this world? John has constantly been calling us to believe in Jesus, but also to live in light of that knowledge and belief. He's calling you today to experience the freedom that comes uh, from knowing Jesus, not to being burdened by God's laws, but living them out joyfully. He calls us to recognize the hope that we can have, that even though we are weak in our faith, we can still hope that we will share eternal life. I think to help us connect believing with living, ask two questions of yourself. How are you being captivated by God's grace and kindness? How are you being captivated by God's grace and kindness? I mean, do you find God's commands burdensome? I mean, be honest, as you kind of look at how God calls you to live. Do you find it burdensome? Because if you do, I think one of the best solutions 
is to be continually captivated by who Jesus is and what he has done. We're too easily distracted, I think, by either the busyness of this world, uni assignments, work challenges, uh, relationships, family life. We're too um, like preoccupied with the problems of this world, uh, whether it's health or, or our finances or, or future decisions. And so, so often, busyness and suffering blinds our view. It distracts us from the tension of seeing who Jesus is and what he has done, the grace and kindness of God. Would you say that you are caught afresh by the grace of God? I think if you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes it can be a bit normal, ordinary. I mean, is your heart being constantly stirred uh, by the love of Jesus and what he has done, or is it your heart just like kind of just palpitating away, going boom, 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 you know, just, just chilling, not really in awe of who Jesus is, what he has done, and the grace that we have been showed? Can I encourage all of us here to work hard at cultivating an awe of God? Obviously, I think spending time reading the Bible and praying is a really helpful way of, of knowing Jesus more. But I think a helpful way to kind of consider it is how do we take this and, and stir our hearts? So often, um, maybe music really does it for you. People have written amazing songs that stir our hearts and our affections for Jesus. Maybe listening to, to music or, or playing an instrument is something you should do more often that, that, that stirs your soul uh, to, to recapture your imagination of how amazing and beautiful God is. Maybe for some of you here, it's, it's walking through nature, remembering that Psalm 19 tells us that the glory of God is revealed in creation. Maybe for some of us who like to read, it's about finding biographies of old saints of old, that have demonstrated great works because they know who Jesus is. Sometimes as you see God work and provide and care for people, your heart is stirred by just who he is. What are you doing to cultivate this awe of who God is? I think the second thing that we can do to connect a believing with living is to cultivate a posture of hope. As you seek to kind of appreciate God's grace and live out God's commands and you fail... Is your first instinct uh, to double down in self-determination and work better to follow God's commands? Or maybe your instinct is to feel hopeless that, that Jesus, I'm not really a believer. John reminds us of the hope that Jesus brings. When we fall and fail in our lives, our, our first action should not be, I need to do better next time. Our first action should be to run to Jesus creating a posture of hope so much so that we see eternity more than we see our present we see god's words weigh heavy upon our hearts instead of what the world tells us it's so easy to hear the world saying you call yourself a christian look such a hypocritical person you are instead friends we need to hear the words of god see instead of of kind of just being hopeless and and walking in dismal kind of self-indulgence we need to remind us that just as Jesus said, just as God spoke to Jesus at his baptism, saying this, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, because we know Jesus and live in Jesus, God says to you this morning, whatever you've done, if you know me, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. May those words stir our hearts and give us hope to know that we are dearly loved by God. 
I pray that our time in 1 John has been helpful to be people who love, who obey God's commands and trust in His Son. Let me pray. Father God, we, we come before you this, this morning praying that you would be people who help us believe in Jesus, that He is the Son of God sent to cleanse us from our sins. But more than that, I pray that knowing this would stir and transform our hearts. Help us to be people that love one another, that seek to obey your commands. Help us to recognize that they are not burdensome, but they are given words drenched and dripped in your mercy and your kindness to us, that we may live a fruitful life here. But even though we fail, O God, because we will ultimately do this side of eternity, help us realize, O God, that we can be certain that we are still your children, dearly beloved, because it is not us that try, but Christ that has done everything for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.